Hello, and welcome to Fireside with a VC. I'm really psyched today to have my old friend, uh, Alex Moore, on the podcast. Alex, amazing, quick, fast-paced career, went straight from Stanford to Palantir, where he joined Joe Lonsdale. I think you guys were in one room starting that company, so every founder can relate to that. So he was the first employee there, director of operations, and Palantir, if you don't know who that is, you probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast. They turn that into just a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar company. It's kind of like the poster child of what an AI company can be and how to solve a million problems um, and really probably change the course of history. I, I funded two out of Alex's three startups before he became a VC. One was Backplane, which was co-founded with Joe Lonsdale from Palantir again, along with another good buddy of ours, Matt Mickelson. We then funded him again at Node Prime, and I think I introduced you guys to Albert Kim at Ericsson Venture Partners, who became a customer, became an investor, and ultimately acquired that company. So Alex has got a long-standing great track record before becoming a venture capitalist, keeping the band together with Joe Lonsdale. And like me, as a COVID migrant, we migrated to Austin, Texas after being in Silicon Valley for a long time. So Alex, great to see you. Good to catch up. Happy to be here. Very excited to to talk about what's what you know what we're up to and and uh, you know what's going on in in uh, defense and other areas we're working on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. So, quick word from our buddy Mark, who'll introduce Venture Debt, and we'll just get right back into the pod. Hi, everybody. This is Mark Dietarjani. I'm with Pacific Western Bank, and we are a bank focused on helping startups grow and get to the next stage. We've been working with Andrew and 7BC for years now. Andrew and I go back a decade and a half at this point, and I've always respected the fact that he's a thought leader in the space and somebody that you can learn an awful lot. And he kind of opens up that window a little bit into VC and what's what's happening in the back room. So we're excited to be partnered with Andrew on his podcast here at Pacific Western Bank. We focus on helping startups get to the next level. We offer a startup services program for companies that are the pre-A, which includes some free banking and some high yield interest rates. And then when companies raise an A round, then we start moving into treasury management services and then venture debt. And we believe that we're one of the leaders in the venture debt market because we are flexible and we can do custom packages and we don't just do off the shelf type of term sheet. So enjoy the podcast. It's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to learn some things and we'll see you on the other side. Thanks, Mark. And anybody who needs an introduction, happy to share your information with them. Just get in touch with me and I'll put you in touch with Mark. Thanks so much for supporting and sponsoring the pod. So Alex, at within Venture Capital and within 8VC, um, I understand that you're running both like an incubation program as well as your defense practice. Can you tell us a little bit of the story of of 8VC and how you're set up? I mean, you guys, I remember you you hit Oculus really early, sold that to Facebook, and it seemed like you had just closed a fund when you guys were in like University Avenue there in Palo Alto, and then bang, you raised another big fund. So maybe tell us the story. You know, I kind of think of you guys a bit like every now and then you've got like a founder that's iconic, becomes a billionaire, like. Mark Andreessen, Peter Thiel, and then like Joe Lonsdale coming out with you with Palantir. It was one of those kind of overnight big fund. But maybe tell the story of ABC and then we're going to focus on what you're doing there. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, yeah, so I think the origin story here is actually, um, you know, Joe had set up a, a sort of a previous iteration of the firm called Formation 8 which I was not a part of. And then that, that was the group that caught like the Oculus investment. And then at some point he made a decision to sort of split off from those two partners. They each set up their own, um, their own funds. The Joe came over and set up 8VC, um, which we're now, uh, you know, I joined in sort of at the end of fund one, where now we're about to launch fund five, um, you know, about 6 billion under management. It's, I think basically you could abstract away the thesis of 8VC as basically being a venture capital firm, more or less built around some of the thesis that we had at Palantir in the early 2000s, which was every industry is going to sort of need like a data platform that that's really smart where you're sucking up all the data. 
for, for an industry or specifically building the software for industry. So like vertical software, not horizontal. Um, and that you're, you're sort of automating workflows for an analyst or in other ways, tackling some of these sort of, you know, infrastructure like problems that specific industries have. And that goes, and I can, I can, I'll give the short version, but basically each industry probably needs its own data ontology. Palantir was, was sort of what we have called like a flexible ontology. So we sort of, you know, Palantir is a larger company that can build out, um, you know, sort of more specific type type uh, data tech for depending on who the customer is. But we actually think that you should have like a thousand of these companies, you know, and, and that they can be really specific on industries. Uh, you know, insurance should have like an insure tech, per, you know, or, 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 or five or 10 companies that are built specifically for insurance, for as an example. And more or less, APC is trying to invest in and or incubate companies that go into these specific industries, which are very, all very individually complex and build verticalized solutions end to end that can make those industries more efficient. This is sort of like the anti Salesforce thesis where you have, or, or the, or the, the eighties or the nineties, you know, sort of horizontal, everything's horizontal and Microsoft can build everything for you. And we're like, no, 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 no. Like actually, you know, they can build some generalized business tools, but you need to have for your industry workflows, much more specific types of software that are high end, um, that are that are that are database that are that are automating a lot of things. So that's kind of what we do at APC on the large scale, and then uh, we 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 cover a bunch of uh, of sectors. And then on top of that, we do things like defense and and bio and sort of these other things. And uh, I kind of dip into different parts of the firm in that way. Yeah, and why don't we why don't we drill down on defense first? Um, I remember early in my career, uh, a lot of people were saying, I, I don't want to get involved in like guns and whiskey being sold to Indians. And I just don't want to get involved in defense. But at the same time, you're paying taxes for like an aircraft carrier. That would be the first thing a sub would sink. Like, what are your what are your kind of like philosophical views of dedicating part of your time while you're alive to, you know, tech in defense? Because like, yeah. I think a lot of people are just like shut down and get negative when, you know, I, I'm the opposite. Yeah. I, so I think there's like, there's like a few things happening, like, you know, and like on one side, there's like this cultural, this cultural thing in Silicon Valley where um, there's been like sort of an anti-DOD or anti-defense uh, sort of like, like thread that goes through and like the Google engineers rebelling against Project Maven, right? That's kind of like the, 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 the example um, but for me, it's more like actually having like a mission-based philosophy around building companies. So like I went to Stanford September 9th, 2001, and then something happened two days later, you know, 9-11, right? And I was like, oh man, like, I guess I'm not working on, you know, sort of, I, I had observed the nineties internet boom and I'm like, I'm going to get involved in the internet. And it's like, nope, I guess we're going to have to like build a company that solves this problem. Why did this happen? Oh, like our uh, DOD and, and intelligence IC structure, intelligence community uh, is, is a mess on the IT side. They have no technology. They don't have any software. It's 2001. Oh my, what can we do? Right. So that kind of like is the Palantir piece. Um, and let's just talk for a minute on that. So like, uh, not everybody knows the the origin story of Palantir or like, you know, I've heard that Osama bin Laden wouldn't have been found had it not been for Palantir, but maybe explain your origin of how you're working with the intelligence community so people can trace that back to understanding yeah, how, you know, like generals and all these people. Right, we started the company in like 2004, 2005, when it was like actually like before I graduated, I graduated Stanford 05. So which was a good year. Steve Jobs gave the graduation speech there, by the way. Um, wow. But um, uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was a lot, kind of this hunky group from Stanford and then sort of Peter Thiel plus this, this really smart engineering core from PayPal, uh, the, uh, the, the anti-fraud team actually uh, came over and we kind of like came together and had the baby, which was the company, but it was going after like, you know, really just like big data type, quote unquote, you know, like, buzzword but like large scale um challenges there where 
the USIC, you know, just the US government was not really making use of like any technology at all and had all the what we call like silos of data. So a lot of what we're doing was just like getting these like groups to connect databases like as counters, the backbone and, and share, and then also creating like sort of the civil liberties piece. So like there's different clearances. So like not everyone should see all the different data and like you can you can kind of get access to what you're allowed to see, but more or less create collaborative analytic products that would like allow sort of like the better parts of like intuition and and, and connections to, to hopefully solve like society's larger problems. So that's like catching Osama bin Laden. That's like finding Madoff's money. That's like cleaning up the banking crisis of 2008. That's like breaking um, you know, more than half of the human trafficking networks in the Mediterranean with Interpol. Like we do all these things that the public doesn't know about. Um, and we're, we're routinely like, there hasn't been any big terrorism events since 9-11. Like why not? Right. I don't know. Maybe it's because the USIC works now. Right. Um, so we have, we had definitely had a big hand in a lot, solving a lot of those problems. So like now Joe and I are VCs or whatever. And like, um, I set up other companies which you invested in that are, that are not DOD related, but swinging back around to it now, I think it's like just a super important area. Um, the geopolitical piece, like we have Russia, we have China, like Russia's real now. We've, we had been saying that for 20 years. Now people believe uh, people like us. Um, and so, and like China's real and like now, now people are starting to believe people like us. We've been saying that for 20 years. So, um, so then like, okay, that this stuff's real. Um, we we're good at technology and then you kind of have the backdrop is and then I'll, I'll end with the philosophical piece but the backdrop is we have a defense system that's set up which was worn by eisenhower the military industrial complex what do we mean when we say that four or five large companies that are monopolistic the lockheeds the raytheons etc they're good at building hardware it's kind of like you said these big format chips and planes and this and that and they're bad at software so ding, 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 you know, like we're really good at software in Silicon Valley. Why don't we go in there and help these guys out? Um, you know, and, and so I think that's actually happening now. I think it was like super uncool defense when we, like George Bush was president and they were, he was like bombing Iraq when we were starting Palantir. Like imagine you're at Stanford, it's like a very like woke liberal college and you're like, everyone's like thinks Facebook is cool. I'm like, I want to share photos on my phone. And we were like, we were like, that's dumb, you know, who gives a shit about that? Like we're, we're trying to solve <laughs> like world problems here. Um, so we kind of had this little renegade um, contrarian group. What's happening now is different. There's there's a much larger group of engineers that think this stuff is cool um, and that has a mission. They care about the country. They care about the West, right? You know, like let's defend Europe a little bit. Let's help these guys out, right? With technology, we don't, you don't need to run over there with bullets. But, um, you know, we need to we need to give technology to our military that's running over there with bullets or whatever. So well, clearly somebody did, because you, you did a lot of recruiting as director of operations and kind of first employee there. And I remember I was living you know, like, you know, I was every day walking the streets of Palo Alto at the time that like, Jesus, Alex has got like that building and that building. You know, when you're going through hyper growth and I remember paying money for an option to take over this other building across the street, like. It was like a real estate challenge of housing all these like Waterloo engineers you were hiring and everybody in that Phil's coffee around there was like, it was all Palantir in there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there was definitely, and like, this was also like, I think happening with the Facebook folks, but it was like, let's build things in downtown Palo Alto. Let's sit on Stanford. Let's make like sort of the environment like the campus like environment for engineers so like not only you're just joining this really awesome company that you're working on the hardest data challenges in the world that affect the most critical problems in the world aka have the most leverage and also like you're living in this like kind of world where um you know there's a strong culture and you can sort of be roommates with other engineers and like i think at late 2000s that was like really the height of that we were certainly capitalizing on that. I think the on the consumer side, the Facebook people did a great job too. We ended up actually renting out. I did a deal where we took over all of their buildings when they outgrew downtown Palette. So in a way, they actually consolidated the real estate portfolio there. And then we just took it over from them. Um, but yeah, I think we had like a really strong culture. There was a strange thing where it was like you could work on advertising algorithms and photo sharing. And like, perhaps that's maybe like the lucrative op op option. But then like we're working on like the really hard technology and like building and scaling like the largest data sets in the world. 
And like, we're not just like optimizing advertising algorithms. We're like saving the world or, or, or something, right? Some version. Yeah, of yeah, 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 so, yeah. There's like, yeah, there's, mo- the there's, there's more people enslaved now than there has ever been in the history of man, which is, you think like, you know, slavery has been abolished, but, you know, if you're saving someone out of slavery, you know, getting trafficked in the Mediterranean, that's like maybe a little more interesting than supporting Zuckerberg. But another interesting thing about Palantir, which is maybe a roadmap for some other startups and investors is you you had obviously military intelligence, government applications. And if you could find Osama bin Laden, then maybe you could find a bunch of guys that put insurance claims that their pickup trucks have been in accidents. And then you figure out that they were all in Las Vegas last weekend and they all went to high school together and they live in different parts of the country and you help an insurance company stop, you know, identify fraud, like in a way a human could never do. So it seemed like, you know, on the outside, it seemed like you started with kind of intelligence military, and then you quickly found your way to, you know, financial services and wall street. Is that. I think that's pretty accurate. It's, it's, it's also like this thing where it's like, we're living in the world where, as the Palantir group or, I mean, as the ABC group now or whatnot, where um, we're like, there are like these actual like bad people in the world or there's like real problems. Um, like, so like, let's go like, and it's not, it's, we're not in a defeatist thing. We're like, you actually can solve these problems. We don't have to tolerate fraud. We don't have to tolerate coordinated criminal networks. Um, you know, mafias or whatever you want to call them or gangs or, or, or uh, terrorist groups or, or fraudsters. Um, we don't need to tolerate that for our medical system. We don't need to tolerate that for our claims or, um, you know, military or, or otherwise, or, or, you know, Fortune 500 marketing, right? It's like, we don't need to tolerate that. So it's actually like a data problem you can solve. So there's this kind of thing where we solved it for the U.S. government um, finding needles in haystacks. And actually it's not just understanding like individual acts of crime. It's more like, like coordinated group wide fraudulent larger networks and cracking those networks. So it's like a Palantir investigation. You might like arrest 50 people across the world in a day, not one person in one basement or something. So it's like, it's, it's, it's like this more broad grandiose way of thinking about how cr- criminal networks work. It's a little scary actually to think about it, but but it's also like comforting to know that like Silicon Valley has has a group that thought about it and like worried about it, right? So, um, so we did that. But now, like you know, Palantir is just a much bigger thing than the, just that, right? It's like we also like did a four hundred. You're still on the board of directors, aren't you? Are you still on the board? I'm on the board. I, I mean, I wasn't originally, they, and it kind of brought me out 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 out. Uh, it dusted me off a little, but I've been on the board for two years. But you know, now like Palantir is doing a lot. Like half, more than half of our business is 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 commercial and it's helping, you know, Fortune 500 companies with various challenges they have. And we do deals with supermarket chains and we help them move their food around, you know? And so it's it's, it's yeah. not just um, this sort of big, scary DOD thing. Although guess what? We're helping a little bit in Ukraine, you know, like wink, wink or whatever. Um, or like we can imagine we're involved in at this stage, any sort of, uh, you know, geo, geopolitical event is sort of some way like, Maybe the U.S. isn't using it, but perhaps we've like sold the software to foreign customers, or and, and maybe their a government or their version of you know a group is using it, um, you know, in certain ways. They have our software or their or things of that nature. So it's a pretty like broad company. I think it's like actually a yeah. much broader company than people think of it as. Sure. And in the future, you know, the government business ends up being you know a minority, but very 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 important for society. But for dollars, it's more of like actually the smaller bucket, and the much larger bucket is Fortune 500, and like really just making like solving these data challenges for people, and like going full stack on that. Versus, um, you know, what they do now, they sort of buy 50 pieces of software and try and put it together themselves. And we have like the data lake, and then we have the this thing, and then that, and then we put it on the cloud. But like that doesn't work, and then we try and Kubernetes. It's like we like Palantir sort of has a vertical solution that solves all of that. Um, but anyways, I, we can, we can talk about. Yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah, we could spend a lot of, we, we could talk about the automation of the data center with what you did and us trying to help you at node prime as well, but I want to get back into the venture stuff. Um, but there's so many startups that are, you know, automating human workflows, tapping into data sets in whatever industries. And um, it's good to know someone on the board of Palantir that could potentially 
you know, API in with these guys or maybe even acquire the business. Um, on like market cap, I think Palantir right now is at like 14 and a half billion, but what were the, what were some peak valuations? Like what was the peak valuation of, uh, of Palantir as public or private? Yeah, I mean, I think we like got sucked up in that, you know, sort of like the, the tail end of the liquidity piece there. So I think like maybe there's a variation where we were like overvalued, quote unquote, so to speak for a bit there. But then like maybe we're like radically undervalued right now. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there's other public companies that do technology that feel that way too. Um, so it's always been a long game. I mean, I think this is like an 18-year-old company. Um, I hold my shares in it, you know, or like, like, you know, a large percentage of my shares in it. And you just kind of like, you know, like Oracle took three decades to get big, actually two. So, and then we're like 17 years. And so if you look at things at like an Oracle scale, um, then you're like, wow, the third decade is much more exciting than the second. So it's like, this, this is like mega long-term type thinking, but I think like we're still in that mode for when you look at valuations, it's like, we care about that, but we don't, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, you can't pay too much attention. I mean, it, it, it's it's interesting to know, like, you know, the ups and downs on even like an acquisition machine. Do you remember, do you remember what the peak was? I mean, it, yeah, it looked I, like I, it was. Like, like, you know, what, you know, in the 20s, and then there was like, for a minute, it was like in the 30s. Um, but, you know, I, I, like our, our, that was post IPO before our lockup. So like all of our employees and investors were locked. So like, I don't know if that's relevant. You know, you're, you're kind of talking about like hedge funds being creative or Wall Street bets or, or people like that playing in the stock, whereas the holders were locked. I think our lock dropped in like mid low 20s. And then now we're like much lower. But, you know, probably somewhere in the middle of these numbers is like the, where, the, where the stock should be or, or something like that. Right. It's hard okay. to know. Well we have no control over that, right? So, so, so with with so let's get over back into eight VC now. So with eight VC uh, growing so fast and AUM growing so quickly, how how are you guys organized for going after geography, sector, stage? Like, where where are you guys playing? And anyone listening to this know when they should attempt to hit you guys up for yeah. as a potential investor. Yeah, so just like diagnostic of the firm, seven funds, launching fund five, I think, um, you know, eight to 900 million, maybe somewhere in there in, in a few weeks. And then we're basically in verticals covering what we call bio IT, uh, which is using like, you know, computer science for bio in certain ways. Um, then we have enterprise infrastructure, uh, you know, so these are like two formal teams that have like four or five people on each. Then we have a logistics partner where we've done developed, I think, the most complete portfolio for logistics, supply chain, warehouse, e-commerce, supply chain, et cetera, self-driving trucks, yada, yada. Um, and then uh, we have a, a healthcare person. We have a growth person. And then uh, we have a, actually a consumer person. And then I'm basically the defense weird hardware and then seed slash incubation person. So we have also developed this program called EVC Build where right. we're differentiating ourselves or attempting to do so from other firms. And we purpose built five to seven companies per year. It's the opposite of the YC model. We don't put in 200 grand. We put in 10 million. We hire the, the founders or ERs come to us. We build with them. And then we're looking for basically large industry gaps that we're high conviction on and then building out complete solutions to those. So like, hence the 10 million, very high conviction and we've rewritten our LP charters to put 25% of our dollars into this. So when you talk about a fund that has a two or three year life cycle, it's 800 million, you know, and then 200 million of that is going into like incubating. So this is like a pretty high conviction practice. Some of it this- also, It's a bit like it, it, some of those, some of the dynamics of uh, those businesses that you, you guys are building almost feel like they have the characteristics of semiconductors. Like you need to spend 50 million to see if the semiconductor thing even works. And then maybe another 25 million to have like 24 seven guys staying in a Shangri-La in Taipei in the fab until the fab gives it the thumbs up and then boom, everybody wants to buy that and push it into every fab in the world. Not every like SaaS, you know, like, like, you know, I was thankful you brought me into Nihilus. That was a great deal we got to do together, but like, you know, you're, you're not dealing with just Nihiluses that are, you know, these highly scalable capital efficient companies that you can predict revenue growth and valuation moving fast. Maybe talk a little bit about that, because I think you guys are optimistic to take on tough stuff, but you're also able to raise money and do these long March fights for, for that. 
and yeah, government sales is generally like a bitch, right? You know, like yeah, government sales is usually a tough one, even though you know a lot of people, but. Yeah, it's really tough. I mean, so, but yeah, we, we've, we've incubated now like 17 or 18 of these. And I think like a subset of them are these sort of larger dollar investments. And like an example of that's like Eperis where we're doing direct building directed energy platform for the DOD. Um, we just, you know, we're, we're, we're making really amazing early progress on that, but that's, you know, that company has over a hundred patents. We basically have um, take a direct and energy from like something that's the size of a tractor trailer, which is like the crappy product the Prime's made. We have something that's about the size of a picnic table, you know, that's that's radically more powerful and can do a lot of things. For example, you know, taking drones out of the sky, which is sort of the number one thing you'd want in like a warfare situation. So that's a solution that will give, um, you know, the U.S. and allies a generational advantage against adversaries, hopefully a, a working in a way that deters. So like, Maybe if you're Russia, you don't want to attack Ukraine. If we have the upper solutions there, um, it'd be like very unfruitful to, to attempt to do so. So in the future, so we have a few like that. We have a company called Resilience Bio where we're rolling up all the biomanufacturing uh, facilities in the United States. They're doing things like producing Moderna vaccines in these facilities and a lot of other things. And it's sort of like, that's a long-term thing. It's like, we should probably have the bio industry like, including like making vaccines and such be physically located in the United States. What, what does that cost to do? It costs a few billion dollars because you have to go buy up these facilities and, and upgrade their technology and, and hire up hundreds of people and technicians and train them. So those are kind of the bigger, chunkier projects. But we also do have, you know, so sort of more traditional looking vertical SaaS businesses that come out of the incubation program. Um, I have a vocational training program where we're building like the sort of the future of trade schools, and we're training people to work in the all these factories that are being reshored. So we have stuff that looks like that. Do you, know Finn, do you know the company Finn? F-Y-N-N? I have not seen that company yet. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll show it to you afterwards. It's a company we invested in a couple of months ago that uh, provides capital for people to go to trade schools. So it's like it's like well, a little bit like you got like Lambda School, which is now Bloom, is, you know, train everybody to be a software engineer. Uh, but what about people that need a loan to go through boot camp to become a nurse or an auto mechanic or you know fixing air conditioning units and and, and all that kind of stuff but that's anyway how solve, that's how we solve societal problems right it's like let's up level our workforce that rebuilds the middle class we have this thing with like where we shift all of our middle class you know all of our factories overseas for some stupid reason in the 90s we have to restore <laughs> that we have to bring the factories back now we have to retrain the next generation of workers to work in those factories so yeah, like I commend you for making that style of investment. Number one, I imagine there's a lucrative upside. And number two, it solves a very real problem for society. There's a lot of people in pain in the middle of this country yeah. that we need to help out. Yeah, I mean, that's like, uh, it's a company with, if, if you just like work in as a sales trader in Wall Street, you have like a bad day at work. These guys will get in the elevator and change companies for one basis point. Like there's no loyalty to the mission of being the sales trader at whatever X firm on Wall Street, where, and, and that might be the case if you're working in advertising or photo sharing, you know, at some of those big companies in the Valley. But if the company's got a mission, it's more likely that employees are going to, you know, get through some choppy waters and stay together. And so a company with a mission, I think sometimes has, you know, better financial outcomes, but uh, Finn is the, the revenue model of it is crazy. How, how quickly they make money and the way the cash moves in this business. Um, you know that you know, people don't need the money that they don't have to take it but uh the, you know it's not a, it's not a philanthropic company but it does have a double bottom line let's talk for a minute about like like what the pizza pie of equity looks like in these deals and any challenges yeah. of, of incubation like i remember the samer brothers i i know all three of them in germany and they would like they would uh create a company recruit typically a very young team right and you know, if you like, you basically, it's like you're two years in the army of working with the Samurais, and then you go off and probably make more money, but they would own like 80% of the cap table of the company that they incubated, you know, in a venture studioed up. And then uh, when they go to raise money from other VCs, VCs are like, yo, there's way too much dead weight in the cap table. This just doesn't look like a benchmark deal where we're going to target 25% ownership in it. On the other hand, if the Samwers sell that thing for, you know, one of these tuck-ins for 50 million and they own two thirds of it, 
you know, they might get their, it's very likely that they're going to get their entire check back. It's just a completely different, you know, approach to venture capital. Maybe what does it look like and how do LPs, other investors that come in downstream, think about the ownership structures of these deals? We have pretty strong feelings on this. So like our thought is if the cap table is weird, like number one, no talented people will work on it. And then number two, no, like A plus VC firms will invest on top of it. So that's a non-starter for us. Our deals are usually something like we put in five or 10 million. Um, We'll buy 20% of the company for that. Uh, We'll take a few points um, for, you know, for APC partnership. So like, like, you know, you might have like me on your board and like I spend a year with you, then like our firm will take like a little bit of points for that. Um, but more or less, like we're ending up around, combined, maybe like with the dollars in plus the partnership piece, like 25%, something like that at the most. And then founders need to have like the normal like amount they would normally have. Um, and then, you know, we want to do, we want to have a larger than average cap table. I mean, I just, you know, uh, incubated a company that had a 22% engineer pool. Wow. After dollars in from ABC, and and for people who are unfamiliar with this, I mean, the 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 thing about the the part of the ESOP, the employee stock option pool, that goes to actual employees as opposed to founders and super important key hires, it it what ends up happening is that it starts off of like theoretically that should be fifteen percent. That's what everyone's kind of thinking, right. but then you end up at a table where you've got the main founders and the VCs. And you know who's not at that table? Those engineers. And so they end up getting cut down, 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 you know, yeah, you know very cool. often. Yeah, some of this is set up because I was the first employee at Palantir, not the founder, right? <laughs> so it's like, I'm like, you know, it's like no one understands these, no one understands these things more than me in Silicon Valley or other first employees of companies where you're like, you know, whoa, like why do employees own less? And like, It's like these 10 director like level engineer guys like built the whole fucking thing. So like they should, so you want to have like the founders own less and then you want to have like 10 or like, so people have like one or 2%. That's the model we use. And then you can hire anyone. Like we, I can go in, I can call these people and say, look, man, come build this with me. Here's 2%, even though it's two years old, you know, and you're going to get like the biggest rock star ever on engineering. So like, that's kind of the Palantir model. Like Look at like it's publicly posted. Like, why do they, why does these guys own why do the guys running Palantir own like a third or a fourth of like the guys who run the other companies? Because we follow this philosophy. It's more about the engineers and like they're the guys who build it. And also it's it's like it's also like a greedy retention scheme. It's like that guy owns two percent. He's like still at Palantir, right? Like from like twenty years ago, right? Because he's like, wow, I like own a ton of this company, and like. I'm not a founder of it, but I came in like engineer 30 and I'm a super genius and they identified me and gave me the like six or seven other stock packages. So we're more on that train. Um, like let's not over glorify founders, but you want to have strong leadership. So you do want to have like, like the, the leader owns a lot of it, but not like all of it. And like the company is not like a monument to the founder. It's like, an, it's like a more of a democratic meritocratic technology institute where you come in from MIT or one of these smart schools we teach you how to program for four years or 10 and then you can go out and do other things now you're really good at engineering and something and you own a lot right and so it needs to like we sort of want to replicate that with the build program and we're like we also just 75 percent of our businesses we just invest in companies that have their own traditional structures so we're not like we're not like putting our uh, philosophy on, on outside, you know, whatever, but like when we incubate, then it should reflect our internal values. And as a selfish thing, it's like, I would rather own 25% of this really big thing than like 40, 50% of this like crappy thing. And then like other smart VCs are like, what the, what, you know, what is this? And like, this isn't like, this is like weird, you know, it's like, you want it to like look normal. And so the goal is for me, I use the term graduate. It's like cool. And like, general catalyst or like one of these other big firms comes in and like does the growth round at one of these things. And they're like, cap table looks pretty normal to me. Like that's a win for us versus like something that looks weird or, or or sort of things like that. So I think that's like our philosophy is also the durable one. Like, like, I don't think it's like, you know, it's, it's smarter maybe, or it's, it's like, like we're trying to do right by engineers, but like, it's also more honest and, but also retains people. So it's like, in a way it's like, if you care about engineering retention and building like $10 billion companies, you sort of want to use our model. If you want to build like 
you know, cutesy wootsy, like $200 million companies. And like the one guy, like you're in love with this one guy who runs it and you want to like throw away your upside and let him have it. Like, so, so it's like, I don't know. I'd rather like build this like category killer and be fair. And then like the founders still do well. Like, does he need like billions or like is less okay. And then like, we're, it's more meritocratic and more fun. So it's something like that. I've, yeah. I've talked to the guys who run all the other incubators and we argue. So, but yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. So you've taken the friction out of future financings and uh, attract and retain talent. I think and you've, but you've got that balanced career of like operator and then to VC. Um, I think something that I've learned even from being the VC side and working closely with my portfolio companies was realizing how many engineers we were losing and you know, sometimes they're in such a hot sector that they're being offered salaries that are just, you, you know, you can't refuse. And you know, how far could we have gone to have kept, you know, try to lock them up with a golden handcuff that's not coming out of cash? Um, and so, if you're rich on that currency of equity, you know, you know, I think that we're probably the whole industry should probably be a little more like you guys to try and create more equity for those key engineers because. When they leak out, it slows down the total self-actualization opportunity, you know, you know, of that company. I think. Um, what do you What do you see as best practices for you guys? And then, where do you see the industry on putting a founder on vesting schedules? So, I remember myself. I founded a company, and our VC came in and put me on a five-year vesting schedule. And yeah. at first, at first I was like, what the F is this? You know, right. like it's yeah. my company. You're lucky to be in here, you know? And and they were saying like, you want this Andrew for your co-founder? You know, like one of our standard DD questions doing one of these today is, has anyone left the company that owns equity and how much, you know, beyond just show me the cap table is I want to hear them tell me that story, you, you know, even. But what do you think about vesting schedules for regular engineers, employees? And what do you think, what's your, what's your thinking around putting a founder on a vesting schedule when you're showing up with your check? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Like founders or employees are different. I think for our employees, we're just doing the standard, like four years, of the one year clip, and then like rock stars, like immediately like re-up them. So it's like, if you hired someone at like, 25 basis points, but they're like someone who should own 1%, sort of like get them there fairly quick. So you're giving them like the second and the third package. And we're sort of like, you're sort of building this arc where they're not like getting this anxiety of like, oh my God, like I'm coming up on my four-year cliff and stuff. So it's like, we've intersected that. We're giving them the re-up after a year or two. And then like the best people will probably end up with like multiple packages. Um, I think for founders, I think, you know, it's like when the SaaS guys come in, they want, they want the traditional four-year and then or something, but like, it's better if it's like longer run to do like a longer term thing. So I, I think we sort of like try and find truth on those situations and, um, you know, or we'll sort of like go a little smaller out of the gate. Um, it just depends on what the situation, who the person is. Obviously it's like someone's like their third company, they have their own ideas, um, but we're trying like teach more of like the concepts to the founders. Cause then ultimately they're gonna be building the packages for their employees. So I try and like explain, I'm like, no, 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 no. Like you don't want to own 25% of your company. You want to own 20%. You want to that 5% and like selfishly hire the best geniuses in the world. And they're going to make your company worth 10X, 100X, what it would be worth. And then your 20% is now up here. And like, once you kind of like get the light bulb to go off, then like that, that then they'll like enforce that on their own or whatever. Um, yeah. So, But then, yeah, a lot of it is just like kind of the general industry standard. So I don't think we're like, authoritarian or you know or extreme i think it's just more like hey man like think about our philosophy and then like look at palantir like we have evidence and stuff and then like talk to these guys and like you know like whoa like the founders own way less than i thought and then like these engineers own like way more than i thought wow and then like they're like happy and then that like guy like you know like hired like 10 of his friends from his phd program and then like that that they have a whole like ai team now that works on that and like Oh wow, that was all because you made this decision at the beginning. And that's everything. That, that yeah. that's everything. And if the blood starts leaving the body, the body slows down and dies. You know, at the end of the day. So this this also relates to the economy. That if your stock options are deep out of the money, um, what was a golden handcuff becomes nothing, and people you know get a little depressed. Um, 
what do you think? I mean, nobody knows, but what's your sense? And you guys are probably, I think Joe's op- podcast is called like the American Optimist or something. Right. So you guys are like generally optimist, but what what do you think? You know, like, do you think interest rates are going to go up? Are, are, are housing prices in Austin going to be going down? Where do you see the economy going? You know, yeah, right now. I think like, and then like VCs are notoriously bad at macro. And then like, we're all terrible at the stock options trading stuff. And we should, we should just buy, buy like ETFs or whatever. But so like, like we always get hit on these downturns. We're optimists. Um, yeah, I think it's just like remaining optimistic. Oh, um, you know, like, like interest rates are probably like, or inflation's probably here for like another, you know, and then next year, maybe it's maybe we have like two bad years is maybe the safer way to think about it. So I think like, how does that translate to startups? Like, startups have to be lean and mean and you know like a lot of the more frivolous types of things that we're getting finance will, will hit harder times and then you want to have like these real sort of quote real companies or whatever that these things that are they're building like into the most painful parts of industry where like you can still get someone to pay you 100 grand for your like data system um you know so it's like kind of meat and potatoes on is, is sort of how i personally think about it um back to the basics meat and potatoes and like maybe if, you know we're in like seed and series a and like b so like for us like valuations can dance around a little bit in those industries or like in those verticals and like you know there's still like a power law thing so it's like you know we're not like the growth pre-ipo investor like those those people are in are in a world of pain but are things sort of business as usual and like like finding around like 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 valuations bumper hop around a little um, but I think like our our long view is still like the world needs all of these important systems. Like the software revolution is in yeah. like inning three, not like any nine. So it's like, you know, we want to see what's next. We want to be a part of it. And there's still just like a large part of our economy that hasn't like had software built for it yet. Um, and so like, it's kind of funny. You like move to Texas and you just interact with like oil and gas people. And they're like, and you're like, how do you guys pump this oil out? And you're like, whoa, like that doesn't make sense, right? And like, what software you, whoa, you don't, you guys don't use much. So you like yeah. learn about other industries. And I think with that education and just like healthcare is broken, like there, there's just a lot of stuff that the baby boomers have, have, have left to us and low interest rates. You like sort of don't fix industry problems with low interest rates. You just keep the party going and then interest rates are up, it cuts. And then that's the time where the software, the real software people go like, you know, crack their knuckles and go like, all right, like, let's go to work. So I think we're in like a let's go to work moment. It's probably healthy for like the kids coming right out of school who are sort of the entrepreneurial engineers. And it's like crypto really confused that group. Um, and like, but that, that's kind of like cooled down a little bit. And like, I think crypto is real, of course, and we don't do it. But like, I, you know, but like maybe we'll get the, the young talent into like the hard economy a little bit. And, and there's just like a healthy process that happens. So we remain like cautiously optimistic. We're continuing to write checks. We're launching the eight to nine hundred million dollar fund in two weeks. So like we're business as usual. Um, I don't think we're doom and gloomers. Like perhaps we index like the name of Joe's podcast. Like we, we're we're American optimists. We're sort of like these patriotic, optimistic people that like you know are not like you know too too like um, you know we're, we're sort of trying to cut our own rug a bit, but also like you know, are being practical with how problems get solved. So there's like, there's, there's some, some like practical element, I think to a software entrepreneurship where you're like, what's the problem? Like, what are the five features? And then like, oh, this like system's actually really hard to build. That's funny. Cause I have like 10 friends who, if we put them together, we can sort of build that. And like, we're going to have to spend a year or two with you guys. And then we'll go sell it to all your brother and sister companies in the industry and make a company and then make our own company out of it. So like, I think our bread and butter is still like, strongly intact we're not losing our identities right now uh sure perhaps much less rich than we were last year and you know last year everyone's a rich rich genius and now it's sort you're sort of left with what who you are really are right so so I, i'm like i'm we're, we're we're pigs in mud but as always and like downturns guess what like palantir like the, you know palantir is a company the, the company that's built for downturns so we're those guys still yeah, I think that uh, you can see be optimist, but you can be practical and say if there is a downturn, then that oil and gas guy needs that automation data driven software more now than ever. So you might have been able to say, hey, I'm Saudi Aramco. I made more profit in Q2 last year than the fangs combined. But if tough, things get tough for these companies, they have to listen to that salesperson who says, I can really 
put you ahead of your competitors. I can lower your costs. I can increase your revenues. It's like, that's a, that's a meeting that has to happen tomorrow, not in three weeks. You know, so, so I think there's, you know, a reason to be optimistic. I'm going to close on like just two things. What, what are you recommending for cash runway when you're funding a company, it's got a burn rate. You, you know, it's uncertain what the revenues are going to be, but it's certain what their, their operating plan is to be spending. Where, where are you guys at of, you know, completed financing? How many months before they hit zero cash, you know, yeah, on a cautious it, plan? That's, that's like such a really good question right now. And like, I think, and like, I, I'm speaking as more of like that, like seed incubation guy, right? So I'm like the super early stage type, you know, and we have like a growth guy with later stage things that- I mean, $10 million checks on day one. That's crazy. I mean, I mean, that's- uh. I mean, that's theoretically, uh, uh, you could you could pivot around to a, you know, insanely four year, five year, seven year runway, you know. Yeah, I think there's a lot of wiggle on these early stage things, and we want to get maybe it's like two years is right if you're early, and then if you're a larger company, a year and a half at least or something is correct. Like you definitely yeah. don't want to be like under a year of cash right now, then then raise right now, you know. Um, yeah. But. I think that's right. And then like getting comfortable with flat rounds and like, I don't think we've seen big down rounds yet in our portfolio, but a lot of that is we have the luxury of just being that when you're super the early stage, then like this valuation stuff is sort of like less of a thing. And then when you're growth and things go over 200 million, it, it is quite of a spreadsheet sort of a thing. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you want to have like a year and a half minimum. You want to hire like only really core people and, you know, so maybe like we're moving into back to like points of truth and like fundraising is supposed to be hard. Like I love seeing these, some of my entrepreneurs now are like doing 20 meetings and like getting crushed. And I'm like, hell yeah, I did 50 meetings for no prime. And like you, we got- Yeah, and, and no that. more like it's, you need to wire by Friday. So we're not going to go through due diligence that um, thank God that's over. Yeah, um, so it's like the, the, the yeah. entrepreneurs should eat, should eat it a little bit. Excuse me, like- like they, that's part of being an entrepreneur, earn your stripes, man. Like get turned out, rub your nose in that. Like I want them to. So yeah, I think it's healthy. Uh, it's probably quite, it's quite frustrating, you know? And then like, I'm the C guy, I'm like coaching them. I'm like to all oh, they didn't, they said, no, let's tweak the deck. Like, like, how'd you pitch it? Like pitch me, practice something. So for me, yeah. it's like cute and fun, um, obviously painful. And then uh, we don't, you know, if the economy goes down again and you did this interview again, I'd be, you know, doom and gloom and very upset. And some of my companies went out of business that hasn't happened yet. So I think we're still like on this edge where real entrepreneurship pays off, doing the meetings, learning how to pitch, like the Steve Jobs thing, like something around charisma, something around belief, not trivializing the process. And like, I think if your goal is, if you're like this 22 year old engineer, your goal should not be to like make money. It should be a, be a responsible Silicon Valley citizen. What does that mean? It means you got to start a few companies. It means you got to be like mentoring your peers, you should be spending time back at the school you graduated from. You should be volunteering. You should be helping. You can get around to being a VC later and doing what you and I do now. And like, but get some knowledge and dirty, dirty up your hands a little bit. So I think like we'll get more a variation of that now, which is like, you know, music to the ears of like old grizzled Silicon Valley dogs, because they probably <laughs> like older guys than me were like, you can't believe the internet boom in the 2001, you know, or what 2000 and like, I lost 90% of my money. It's like, that's how you become an entrepreneur is not like making the money. It's like eating it and then persevering through the next cycle. So I just think we're moving on a new cycle, reconsolidation, and that should be looked at as opportunistic. And, you know, we all have like psychology and things and like go on walks and, and uh, take, get a dog, but like be tough too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, we we got to wrap up here, but I think I like minimum 18 month runway, even in good times, because- yeah. It's good to fund a strategy, a company. You're making a bet with conviction and saying, guys, 12 months, let's hit this hard. We got 12 months to just go for it. And then we have six months to assess where are we? And can we run a process the good old fashioned way, which could take four months, you know, if, if, if things aren't all great and you've got time to maybe lower expenses, but you've got a year to not have to, you know, worry about knee pads and in the distraction of educating some VC who doesn't understand your business like you do. So, and I think when times are tough, I like to see 24 months because it's just right. going to be harder and slower. And the founders are against taking that, selling that much stock at this low price when they think I'll be up, I'll be growing every six months like Palantir, you know, days, but um, there's that. So final question is on exit. So 
we had a bunch of companies. I mean, believe me, even my wife is like, damn, these IPOs are getting pushed back at least a year or the yeah. multiples you're getting on M&A right now, you know, is tough. I mean, retail people don't feel as rich as they used to with their 401k stock market, crypto gone to hell. But what's your view on, uh, you know, selling a company in the next three months or 12 months? You know, we're, we're kind of just expecting no, no exits. <laughs> yeah, I think we're like built, trying to build the companies for durability and like the, the the fantasy. There's always like the human like condition is like you fantasize relief is sort of like how the brain works. So, um, so yeah, it's probably better not to fantasize relief in this market um, and, and triple down on cultural investments and uh, really getting close to customers and like you know that like a, the customer centric companies that are like good at that are sort of like you know probably like you know that's what you want to sort of look like right now is is like really spending time you don't want people to churn you know like be like very like caretaking to customers you already do have and like really taking like relishing like making them happy and things so like it's more of that kind of a year um, and, and yeah, there's probably not going to be tons of relief points, but then like the economy marches onward. So you just never know when things bounce back. And I think the more like you learn about people, like how they behave in downturns and like the like kind of good people, like they stick with it and they like, don't like get frizz frazzled, frizzle frazzled. And like, they're, they're good to their employees and they're fair. And like, that's who you want to be. And then when things go real, real well, again, you'll be real rational, you know, even if bubbles come back into the market and then like, oh man, I remember the last bubble and like, I'm going to behave real well and then behave well in the bubble too, not just when it's bad. So sure, all, we're all learning and earning stripes and, you know, onwards we go, uh, you know, it's part of the fun of the tech industry. We have cycles, we have disruptions, we disrupt each other and you, you know, you, you, you're always kind of trying to look around the corner. So that's kind of the fun of it, I guess. Well, Alex, thanks so much. Great to see you here. I got a couple of deals to talk to you about and uh, talk about your next fund as well. So good to see you, man. Talk soon. Cheers. Well, that was certainly interesting. It's Mark Dittarjani with Pacific Western Bank back here. Again, really excited to be part of the podcast with 7BC and Andrew. And we're excited just to support the ecosystem and help you get to whatever your next step is in your business journey. Thank you very much.